Benjamin Franklin once said, In this world, nothing is certain except death or taxes. Well, in this episode, we're looking at both. I was really hoping you'd say that in like an old-timey American accent. I did think about doing that. Yeah. In this world, nothing is certain except <laughs> death and taxes. Oh, would old-timey America just have English accents? <laughs> well, probably did, yeah. Oh, I don't know if I'm going to try this accent, but <laughs> anyway, it's coming up. You'll see what accent I'm talking about. In recent times, the idea that inheritance tax is immoral or unfair or distasteful has gained significant traction, with people labeling it a death tax you know, and being taxed for dying, which sounds ridiculous. Whoopi Goldberg said, this is the accent I'm not going to attempt. Um, I don't want to get get taxed just because I died. If I give something to my kids, I already paid the tax. Why should I have to pay it again just because I died? It's less pithy than Franklin's quote, but it does raise... That's unfair on Whoopi Goldberg. It's very pithy. (laughs) It does raise an interesting question. Proponents of inheritance tax argue that it's an important part of the tax system and it helps avoid the entrenchment of dynastic wealth. This reduces inequality, supports the worst off, and ultimately benefits society. Mm. On the other hand, much of our working endeavors are spent in service of building wealth to provide for our families and loved ones. It's a human instinct, I would argue, to want to provide for those closest to us and to ensure their care when we're gone. This makes a tax on passing the hard-earned wealth, which Whoopi is correct to say was subject to tax, you know, when we earned it, particularly contentious. And I think I just wanted to add there, it also avoids a particularly weird problem of like optimizing your spending to your time of death. <laughs> I have to bet on when I'm going to run out. Otherwise, you know, you don't want to end up with anything in the bank at the end. You've got that seven year window, which we'll come to. But yes, to bring that all together, everyone, in this episode, we are going to tackle this question head on. Should we abolish inheritance tax or as we're calling it, should we tax the dead? I can't promise that that will be the episode title, but it's going to be something it's along those lines. Uh, intro music or ad. Pew. <laughs> Potentially. We'll look at intro music. Welcome, everybody, to the morality of everyday things. I'm your co-host, Jacob. And I'm Ant, also a co-host, in case it's not clear from the context. Uh, for new <laughs> listeners, welcome to the show. We and tackle- it's just a permanent guest. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> My guest this week. <laughs> we tackle a range of everyday moral questions on this podcast, the kind that you might debate in a pub. And, you know, much like our uh, luxury goods episode, this is another back to basics, because this is, in fact, an episode uh, that we're making because I did argue with someone in a pub about this. Someone had said, if anyone can give me a good reason for inheritance tax, I will change my mind. So I gave him several good reasons, and he did later grumble that I had I had a few points. Did he actually change his mind? Yeah. I nice. think Yeah. It, I was genuinely like, huzzah. <laughs> I have I have won one over. <laughs> but anyway, yeah, with this podcast, we equip you with all the arguments to answer these questions, including how you might apply important moral frameworks and principles from philosophers throughout history. All of this is in service of letting you think for yourself. I mean, the human experience is subjective, after all. Truth most likely doesn't exist in some perfect metaphysical sense. So it's relative to your context and your subjective view. It's, yeah. it's really, we want to equip you to think for yourself. Yeah. That itself could be a very big episode, just truth exists in the metaphysical sense. Wow, yeah. I'd been listening to a lot of Nietzsche stuff recently, so I was like, metaphysics is bullshit. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm, entirely, I'm entirely biased by the most recent thing that I have listened to. And also, I, I kind of like the phrasing there, it kind of makes me think of Rick and Morty. The human experience is subjective. Truth doesn't exist metaphysically. Let's go watch TV. <laughs> for our old listeners, sorry, this is a long intro, but welcome back. We'd like to say a big thank you to everyone who has left us a review. The count is growing on Spotify and Apple Podcasts, which is awesome. We're actually approaching 100 with a rating of 4.9 out of 5. Nice. Um, To that one or two people who rated us 4 or maybe even 1. I don't know. Whoa. Just remember that by sheer statistics, you're wrong. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Although you help us look more legit. I think 5 out of 5 would look silly. It looks like it's just your friends and family then, right? So that guy who told us that we gave a good episode even for meat eaters on the vegetarian one. Mm. You know, he's done us a favor. Yep. Uh, If you want to support the show, there is a pre-roll that mentioned 
this, but you can become an ACAST, ACAST Plus member and it'll let you skip the ads on any podcast player. We do also have a Patreon. Cool. So with all that housekeeping out of the way, let's dive into today's episode properly. Yes. Okay. So Jake, the episode title might be slightly different and there's going to be two parts. So actually this one might be totally different because they're, <laughs> they're actually relatively distinct. But in answering in the next episode, in effect, should we abolish inheritance tax? It's as always good to take a kind of step back and take a look at some of the terms at a higher level mm-hmm. and understand the kind of implied context. We need to look at the higher level. So in this case, we'll spend the first episode discussing taxes a bit more generally, why we have any taxes, what's the point mm-hmm. and how they may be justified. And armed with that framework, we can approach inheritance tax in the second part. We'll also be actually an interesting, we, we've discussed It'll be an interesting primer episode that we'll probably refer to any time that we talk about tax issues as a moral question. Yeah, because there's plenty of potential to do future episodes on either different taxes or different schools of thought around taxes. Yep, and was once famously, and I say famously, famously between us, and was on, once asked in his Oxford interview question, <laughs> how was taxation different from slavery? Classic philosophical question. We'll mention him later, but that's kind of Nozick's position. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're like, you're basically, because you're taking some of my money and the money is something I've generated from my labor, you're basically taking some of my labor, so you're turning me into a slave. It's his kind of reasoning. Um, And it was quite, uh, the the interview experience was so funny because I had, we had two tutors uh, at our college and they were the most polar opposite people in the world. (laughs) So like I come into the room and there's one guy with like slick back hair, wearing a suit, sitting there very formally. And next to him was like on a futon with his legs crossed, wearing (laughs) sandals and like a kind of hemp sweater. The first one is like the kind of general or like, I think he was like an expert in Schopenhauer or something like that, that kind of vibe. And then the other guy was like a political theorist. (laughs) His whole thing is around like, he actually is very famous for like a rebuttal of fair play theory, which is like fair play theory is an argument of how you generate political obligations are generated. Mm-hmm. Obligation being a very key term rather than, you know, obligation is like, I have a right to demand it of you, which is obviously very relevant in the case of taxes. Yeah. Um, so that's a good place to get back on track. <laughs> yes. Sorry about that. Oh, interesting turn there, but um, yeah, it was very funny. And then they asked this question and then they just challenge you every time you say anything. Yeah. The whole point is just to see how you think. So on track, let's start with the two questions we said we tackle in this episode. What are taxes for and how are they justified? So generally, we're going to approach three reasons why governments do levy taxes. And then we'll in turn take a look at why each one is uh, may or may not be justified or general conceptions and our own perspectives on how and why they're justified. So the three reasons are, first of all, funding public spending, particular use of the word public in public spending, we'll, we'll explain. The second one is to influence behavior. And the third one is to redistribute wealth. So we'll take those in turn. Cool. So firstly, funding the government's functioning and the provision of public goods public spending. This is one of the fundamental roles of government and of states in general, organising to provide the things that don't make sense for us to individually manage or provide, but are essential to the functioning of our wider societies. So to understand why we say it doesn't make sense for us to individually manage or provide, we should talk a little bit about what exactly is a public good, which is generally what we're talking about here. Public goods, that's a specific term. Economists have a neat definition. Public goods are goods that are non-excludable and non-rivalrous. And we will explain those terms to you. (laughs) Now, non-rivalrous means we can all benefit from it. So a rivalrous good is is something scarce, like a phone, right? If I'm using it, you can't. And even further than that, it doesn't really make sense for us to share it at all. Something Um, non-rivalrous, you can share. Yes, where something non-rivalrous is something like a streetlight, right? Like my, you know, walking on a street that's lit up doesn't stop other people walking on a street that's also lit up. Mm. Granted, take this with a pinch of salt, because any time that you say like a streetlight or a road, like technically there is a limit to how many people can fit on the street, but practically it's non-rivalrous, right? Mm -hmm. And also there's lots of benefits that I get from, for example, streetlight without even being near that streetlight, right? So I know that I'm in a a safer area because of that streetlight, etc. The other definition you said was non-excludable. So non-excludable means you can't stop specific people from using it. So an excludable good would be, let's say, a ticket to a football game. You can't see a match without one. Whereas Mm -hmm. streetlighting, again, is non-excludable because if you're near it, 
like I can't stop you from I'm like <laughs> yeah. block the light. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know. And this is I mean, this is part of what we're gonna talk about about sometimes trying to exclude people wouldn't really make sense mm-hmm. in order to provide that thing. Sometimes that's for practical reasons, sometimes that's because the point of the good is that we want everyone to have it. Mm-hmm. And then it starts not to make sense for private provision of that good. So that's a bit of a flashback to university economics. Sorry for anyone who didn't study econ. You know how important it, we think it is to define things clearly. And what we'll do now is we'll give you more descriptive examples of the kind of goods governments spend money on. You'll see quite clearly how yep. those definitions relate. So some examples of those public goods, right? Uh, we're talking about roads and other public infrastructure, like streetlights, as mentioned. What have the Romans <laughs> ever done for us? <laughs> well, roads. <laughs> Aqueducts. <laughs> Orgies. I don't think that was on the actual list, but, but I'm adding it as a, as a cultural contribution. I think um, they so, did a lot of these. Public education. Yep, that's true. Yeah, public ed- yes. yep. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, public education, healthcare, and other public services like policing and fire engines. Mm. Uh, maintaining our legal and legislative systems. Big one. Yeah, so that means not just just enforcement of the law, but actually the curation of existing and new ones, right? Mm-hmm. Our whole political process. But then there's also supranational stuff. So national defense, international mm. diplomacy. That's not an exhaustive list, but you know, that list plus everything else. There's also paying the salaries for all the government staff who are actually organizing all of that. So all the civil servants who are part of that bureaucracy and, mm-hmm. and so on. And generally these services aren't well suited to private markets for one of several reasons. Most typically, it could be that the market just isn't conducive to competition and it would otherwise be a monopoly. So, for example, water, power lines, train lines. It doesn't make sense to make such heavy infrastructure many times over for several companies to compete. So basically, it would be a natural monopoly. Everyone knows that monopolies lead to disproportionate power for the company who's, who's offering it. Well, that's it. If, if water was uh, like a private monopoly and, mm. and they just decided to put the price of water up, if, if that was even a thing. like yeah, you know, You'd have no bargaining power against it. Yeah, it'd be awful. Yeah, so the, the result is that we kind of nationalise it and let the people people own it. Mm-hmm. It could also be that the benefits, this is part of what we mentioned earlier with that streetlight example, it could also be that the benefits of these services are not well constructed for capturing private profit. It's hard to exclude people. Mm-hmm. So let's take the example of what you said with a football match, right? Mm-hmm. You can ticket a football match, right? So one of the things, and people often forget this, right? They think, oh, you know, you're making all this money from, from the tickets. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of cost to the administration of issuing the tickets, mm-hmm. checking who has tickets coming in. Uh, Even having the turnstiles. Yeah, exactly. So for a lot of goods and services, one, that doesn't make sense. It's too costly to do. And actually, too, it may undermine the fact that you want everyone to have it. That's something that we'll come to in a second. Sorry. Who would you charge and when is the fundamental issue sometimes without limiting access. So imagine, here's another example. Imagine if in every town or village, anyone could just build a road and put a little toll booth on it, right? <laughs> this is a good uh, example. Yeah. So if every road was told by some private provider, sure, you know, you'd get some large private providers who'd come about and that would be kind of convenient. But generally, the sheer hassle of paying across all these different roads you're changing mm. on, it would become unimaginable and it would introduce this huge amount of friction and every single stage there's extra markups because all the private providers need profit as an incentive mm-hmm. to actually provide their service, right? Yeah, and so driving, also add yeah. extra cost. Absolutely. Driving would just be uh, <laughs> a really rubbish experience at yep. that point. I mean, it's already annoying enough when you hit toll roads and you're yep. like, oh, God's sake. <laughs> yeah. And actually, this is an interesting one. So it's a funny thing because like there's, there is this trade-off where like on the one hand, profit adds an inefficiency to markets because mm-hmm. it's literally money that's going to be going to just profit rather than the functioning of that market, right? Uh, on the other hand, bureaucracy also adds an inefficiency, mm. right? And, and, you know, this is what we're coming to next. You, you'll see that in certain goods and services, particularly large public services, it tends to be that the cost of large-scale bureaucracy seems to be more worthwhile than the cost of lots of layers of people taking extra margin, and even though they are, you know, incentivized by profit to be more mm. efficient. Sorry, this is where it's carrying on to. Well, exactly. Uh, to kind of echo what you just said, it's for this reason that we generally see really huge-scale services that are intended to be accessible to everyone. And two good examples here are 
education and healthcare. They're more efficiently provided, run publicly rather than privately, despite those bureaucratic inefficiencies you mentioned, just because, yeah, it's a problem of scale. Take an example. The US has one of the most expensive healthcare systems in the world per person and compared to the level of treatment. And what's interesting there is you get this effect of like, on the one hand, from our UK perspective, that's problematic because when people who can't afford healthcare are in need of it, then they're in a real bind. I mean, the entire plot of Breaking Bad doesn't really exist yeah. without this kind of I, I always think that, isn't it? Like the entire plot of Breaking Bad is if he lived in Europe, it wouldn't have happened. <laughs> <laughs> but then then the flip side of that is the top-notch treatment is hard to beat there. It's, it's like yeah. the best capitalist, healthcare yeah, is The provided capitalist there. incentive does work well at providing the very best healthcare. Yeah, there's a quality um, effect, which is yeah, pretty yeah. cool. And this is, I mean, it's a bit like the housing market where we were saying like the problem is like a lower bound of dignity and necessity yeah. uh, that's constraining this market. It's for this reason that we generally see that the provision of huge-scale services intended to be accessible to everyone, and that's also one of the fundamental issues with someone like the US. They're not very good at, or they, they seem to have some sort of moral questions about agreeing that like it is a fundamental right, like mm. access to reasonable healthcare should be a fundamental right, right? Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. I mean, the, there's some policies that seem to go towards that, like Medicare, etc. But like, there's a lot of people falling between a lot of gaps. We may also believe that people have a fundamental right to basic coverage of these services. Like we're saying, that's kind of one of the contentious bits around um, the US and, mm-hmm. and their provision of healthcare. There seems to be some sort of fundamental disconnect between whether they do consider or, or, or what level they consider to be a fundamental right. I mean, there's Medicare and stuff, but mm-hmm. I don't need to elucidate the fact that like for not very well off people, it seems that the care is not adequate. This rubs up against the previous two points, trying to provide it to everyone. Mm. So while private players can fit into the provision of these services at government's request and be paid directly for their services, you know, that that's an economic model that makes sense. It's harder to imagine some feasible outcome where, you know, along comes some hugely funded benevolent institution who's, for example, just going to give free education to everyone for decades and then find some way to benefit from the wider betterment of the population over the long term as their recompense for mm. doing that. It's, it's hard to imagine a privately structured entity for doing that, right? Um, you, you can see it with direct fees, but that defies the point of giving this away for free as a public good, right? Mm. It's only really the government who receives income tax and sales tax bills who actually is structured to benefit from broad improvements to society, mm-hmm. right? And it's for that reason that it makes sense that the government can gather taxes to provide these public goods. I was thinking about this, and this is a bit off script, but it made me think of Elon Musk's Starlink thing, where he has this technology to provide free internet access and is looking to democratize that to people who otherwise wouldn't be able to afford it. Mm. However, I think there's so much value capture in like being able to provide that at high expense to financial services industries and other places. And mm-hmm. it's hard to see how you'd link that to something like education, but it's interesting because I feel like internet access is, is one of those things that's not seen as a right yet, but maybe in the future will be. Mm. Being able to operate at that level of scale, you start to be able to blur those lines. I don't really have a point there. I just I just thought it as it was an interesting one. So then what, but he can still sell to governments. The government can, can still be governments. providing it for free to everyone by buying it from him. Yeah, right? yeah he totally could. Mm. Education though, I think is different because the benefits are in terms of welfare rather than like a direct Mm. product or so. Do you know what I mean? Also, wait, so just to clarify, Mm. are you saying, to understand the Starlink model, are you saying that they're going to charge the financial institutions more for a different service or a better service? I think so. I might Because obviously if it's the same as the free service, they should just use the free service. Yeah, no, I think what they're doing is providing ultra high speed access for traders. That's uh, one of the... uh, one of the things. Is there some argument that, for example, schools could be funded by providing better education to, ah, you know, here's the fundamental issue though. You could make an argument like, oh, schools could provide better education to people who pay Mm. and then in exchange give
give free education to everyone else. And in some sense that happens, right, through both scholarships and the fact that most major mm-hmm. institutions put their stuff available online for free. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you can access most Harvard courses online for That's free. That's true. That's a good point. But I guess the fundamental issue is that, like, unlike something like trading, where it's like, oh, this is useful for our specific use case, education, you kind of think of more as, like, foundationally formational to who yeah. a person is. Yeah. And so you'd yeah. be structuring, like, social inequalities. Granted, you know, if there is some specific reason i mean say everyone was trying to trade and then you were selling to some people the better access to trading that would be a better analogy whereas most of us happen to want to use the internet for other stuff and don't need the high speed yeah. stuff and aren't trying to interfere with the traders yeah it's a, it's a different enough use case isn't it but actually the point about like having online courses available for free makes it more of a fitting analogy you charge people who go to university who actually attend it in person but yeah but this is the fundamental difference right you can argue that this is where we kind of talk about from an economic perspective what's the point of education that mm. might be a good episode mm-hmm. uh, talk a bit about signaling and stuff like really we both went to oxford what was the value of going to oxford the brand <laughs> it was the brand like i'm gonna go as far as saying like it was awesome to have the two tutorials with actual professors and stuff in small groups yep. but that, a lot of the lectures sucked <laughs> like, I, take that Oxford <laughs> like I remember our, our econometrics lecturer oh my so god it was so bad right yeah. and I remember one of the other guys we were with he was like he was flipping through the lecture notes the lecturer was a Greek guy right? and his name was Sophocles which is a you know even in Greece I think not that common a name and he's like flipping through the notes he's like these notes suck who wrote this and he opens the front page and he says what the hell kind of name is Sophocles <laughs> <laughs> oh god that was, oh, so, that was so funny uh, but yeah. sorry that was a, that was it sorry that was I, a yeah. detour but no you're right like maybe there maybe there are more ways that we can in future with the scale of technology actually find ways that we can do that but the thing is i think technology is an interesting point that's because it does facilitate scale, scale. which which is yeah wasn't a thing when when yeah. the sort of conception of public goods by economists was yeah. first kind of yeah. thought of but i also think like say for example this one with starlink right mm-hmm. It's incidental, right? Starlink is making this stuff or, you know, this internet company is creating this stuff for the profit incentive. Mm. And it happens that they can give it away and that makes some sense for their branding or or mass awareness. It's a great PR move. Exactly. Something like that. Like we don't, we shouldn't allow necessary goods and services in society to kind of happen. You know, hey, maybe it will make sense for someone to make a huge company and give some of it away for free, right? Mm. It's stuff that we need to know is provided. But this, yeah, it's actually analogous to social media stuff, isn't it? And it does sound a little bit like the plot of some kind of like supervillain sort of mm. Marvel star thing mm. of like I've given away the internet for free and now I own you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It does. It does uh, like actually quite significantly feel that way. But sorry, that yes. was a, a long diatribe. Kind of similar to that though. There is also a big number of like quasi-private businesses, mm. so they still require support to service things that are kind of public goods. Mm-hmm. Uh, the post office. Uh, so actually, in the U.S., for example, having a, a railway station and a post office was part of like actually being a town and being connected and being able to function. Likewise here many transport services still benefit from subsidies to enable them to provide service regardless of whether a specific place is economically profitable to service, right? Mm-hmm. So the point is, if you live in a town in the UK or certain places in the US, you should have access to post and transport. Mm. Uh, otherwise, it's just not feasible to live there. University systems, house building, employers, all of these can receive substantial subsidies, tax allowances and grants as well. So finally, considering the government accounts don't reset every year, the provision of these services and forward investment into them can often incur debts, since tax is a form of income to governments, for governments, 
Tax receipts can also be used to pay off old debt rather than fund new services while still effectively funding public goods. And I'll give you some quick facts on those numbers just for context. We'll reference these later. In the tax year ending April 2022, the UK government received nearly $716 billion in taxes. The biggest contributors are income tax, capital gains tax, national insurance contributions. They account for about 55% of tax receipts. And the government went on to spend $622 billion on public services. Really? Yeah. Well, so wait, oh, but sorry. They, they spend that on... Oh, sorry, I thought that's not their total bill, just on public services. Just on public services. Uh, because also the ONS estimates that the UK national debt is almost 2.3 trillion and that costs just 80 billion a year just to service the interest payments before thinking about repaying the principal and stuff wow. like that as well. So they are, yeah, they're still like... So nearly a tenth of tax debt. revenue goes to just, just servicing the debt, not yeah. even paying it down. Not even paying it That's down. mad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was kind of a primer on what are public goods, how do we provide them, a small detour talking about Starlink and the future of companies who could provide more public, public-ish goods mm-hmm. by having a uh, private sales layer. But now let's think more from like a moral perspective, how do we justify taxes being levied for the provision of these goods? So while on the face of it, the answer to this question may seem too obvious to explain, I'm sure that if you've ever gotten into a debate about taxes, you'll have heard people complaining about paying too much tax. In fact, it's a bit of a joke that like students are always highly left-wing, but then as soon as they get a job and they start paying taxes, they become progressively more right. <laughs> what was the expression? If you're not liberal when you're young, mm. you're... Something to the effect of a, a, a bit of a dick. Uh, I can't remember the exact, exact turn of phrases. And if you're not conservative when you're old, you're naive or stupid. Or stupid. <laughs> There's going to be something along those lines. Yeah. I don't endorse that, but carry on. You'll have heard people complain about paying too much taxes or probably not benefiting from the services their taxes pay for. For example, I've never even used the legal system. I had a private education, so it was paid for by my family. Mm. I have private healthcare, so I never use the NHS. Mm. Well, and what would you say to these kind of people? Uh, I think it's a fundamental misunderstanding of what it is to be part of a society, right? What do you mean so by that? fundamentally being born into a literate functioning economy with roads and the options to buy all of the things that you buy or, you know, not buy some things, that makes up the fundamental nature. A lot of the stuff that we're talking about making up the fundamental nature of your personhood, right? There's a mm-hmm. reason why someone born, you know, in a developed country at this point in time has a very, not just a very different life, but a very different perspective on life to someone mm-hmm. born in the 1200s, right? That's the outcome of, and the benefits of generations of tax and the provision of public services. Your business may have never sued anyone, but that's because of the credible threat of court and jail <laughs> existing. And more importantly, actually, the development of a norm of trust has been built, right? Mm-hmm. So the thing I always say when people are like, oh, you know, uh, my business does blah, blah, blah. I don't, I never even use the taxes. Like, do you think you could run your business in Zimbabwe? <laughs> right? Like, no, because you're lacking that basic level of like basic trust and the access to other people who are providing services to you easily and affordably. Right? If we started a new society on Mars with Elon Musk in the next 20 years or whatever, <laughs> again, you're going to have to have all this stuff in place. It'd be, yep. Yeah. Yep. And, and sorry, maybe that's a bit harsh in Zimbabwe. Take somewhere like Myanmar, which mm. is like, you know, they're, they're busy having a war or internal war and genocide. Anyway, the sheer fact that you can get access to services as simple is like cleaners coming to your offices at a reasonable price. That's all because of other businesses that exist and that you can transact safely with because of that norm of trust, because they can get to your office because of public services like roads, mm. because they're literate. So, and so you can contract with other businesses and they understand <laughs> what you're asking them, right? These are all benefits that come with being part of a society. In short, to anyone who says, I did this without any help, you know, again, think of that example. Could you do the same thing in Myanmar or on the moon, uh, you know, without, without that kind of backdrop of years of people benefiting from public goods? And maybe you'll have a conception of why we rightfully owe tax and have benefited more widely, more subtly from the societies that we live in, in such a way that any conception of, you know, this is my wealth, is pointlessly tied up with 
conceptions of like what's ours mm. rather than conceptions like what have we collectively managed to build as a group of people as a society right it's all, um, it's all the people's wealth yeah. <laughs> seize the means of production <laughs> um, I get it like you're essentially saying that whether or not you use X or Y specific public good the general atmosphere of civility of trust like the ability to conduct business mm. in a safe and reliable way this is what you're paying for it to use a probably oversimplified analogy it's like being part of a members club where even if you don't use the pool or the lounge the fact that you get a relatively peaceful stable place to hang out and work or whatever you do mm. your membership pays for that and then in, yeah. in this analogy your membership would be taxes yeah i think like also uh, i mentioned the word literate i think one that people just forget about is like whatever it is that you're doing and these places still exist in the world imagine being in a society that wasn't like literate mm-hmm. or like you didn't reliably know that people held like basic levels of education and could understand like you know uh, would presumably agree over like things that you may consider fairly obvious and basic but actually like you know everything we know is like a, is a product of decades, uh, centuries, thousands of years mm. of, of education, right? If you were to interact with someone from 3,000 years ago, biologically, they're no different, right? The mm-hmm. difference is the society that they were born into and educated in and brought up in and the cultural values and the literal things they know because of that. They're probably a bit shorter too. They're also probably a bit shorter, yeah. That's well, it would be harder for them to access... Good you know, nutrition. Yeah, access reasonable nutrition. Why? Because, you know, how's your supermarket going to get stuff to you without the fact that they could function safely and easily mm. and had roads to get the stuff to you on, right? This is all subtle ways that like the provision of public goods has benefited you your entire life. Mm-hmm. Anyway, mm-hmm. also another thing about public goods, economically, it allows us to make long-term mutually beneficial investments that privately it may not make sense to do. So imagine, and this is true with lots of investments like education and healthcare. Imagine I can lock away a hundred pounds and get a 10 X return in 10 years, mm-hmm. but it only works if a million of us do it right? To not force everyone to contribute the hundred pounds can kind of be seen as almost irresponsible, right? Like Mm -hmm. if I say to my brother, look, um, like uh, there's an amount of money that you can afford to give me. And I know because of the way that I'm levying on you, right? I'm saying I'm doing it some proportion of your income and it's going to benefit you hugely disproportionately, but Mm -hmm. I need to make sure everyone in my family does it. Otherwise it doesn't make sense for us to do it. We don't hit the minimum threshold to achieve the positive outcomes, right? You could almost say that like, not only do I have an obligation, it would be wrong of me to not Mm-hmm. make that happen because it's so beneficial to each of us. And that example is to demonstrate that taxes have a link to economic growth and wider prosperity? Yeah. Or? Yes, to some extent. It's also it's actually more some sort of discussion of fair play theory or, mm-hmm. or, or like social contract theory around like how is it that we form obligations. So it would be something along the lines of like when it leads to things that benefit all of us, mm-hmm. it's not just that like, oh, you should do it. It's like actually you have an obligation to do it. You must mm-hmm. do it. I have the right to penalize you for not doing it. And But just to be really specific on that, you're saying the justification there is mutual uh, benefit mutual benefit in terms yeah. of just economic growth though or in this case yeah it would be in this e- case, economic yeah. yeah again like why does that matter you know I'm, in this example i gave like the example of an investment the point of the investment is that it improves all of our welfare sure. right? which is something that again we'll talk, come to to redistributive point like mm-hmm. it's not just about money why do we care about money it's because of betterment right yep Okay. Before we close this point, there's one other important term to discuss, and that is property rights. So tell us about those. What would you say to someone who says, I've earned my wealth, it's mine, I worked harder than people to earn this, taxation is a form of theft by the state? Basically, yeah, someone uh, someone whose view of their wealth, and we've kind of touched on it already, but someone yeah. whose view on their wealth is that it's their property, it's hard-earned, it's theirs, and yes. yeah, yeah. how do we justify taking that to redistribute to everyone else? And we'll come to redistribution later, but yeah. you see what I'm driving at. So I think one of the things that's really interesting to counteract this point is to be hyperbolic, right? Mm-hmm. And to understand, again, 
and it's this point of like mutual welfare for everyone superseding individual property rights, mm. which sounds very Marxist, but hear me out. We're going to use a hyperbolic example to show that there is clearly a point where that's not true. Mm-hmm. Let's take an extreme case. Jake, the universe is about to implode and you have the key to saving the universe. Oh man, I wondered what that was for. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Just chilling at home, right? I mean, is there any conception of morality where using the key to save the universe that Jake has is subject to Jake's property rights? Oh, it's my key. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) What if Jake's a nihilist and he's like, nah, nah, I'd, I'd rather the universe imploded. Or what if Jake was like, well, it's mine and because of my property rights, I can fairly bargain. So I would like to be king of the world in order to exchange <laughs> this. Um, you know, property rights are, are certainly important functional heuristics for societies, like largely market economies function very well, but that doesn't mm-hmm. mean that they're moral perfect, mm-hmm. morally perfect things. Or like if you are thinking in a kind of metaphysical sense, like, oh, the world of true forms is one where property rights are enshrined. No, it's like a practical contract that mm-hmm. has limits, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, And, you know, as Rawls puts it, what I'm saying is that they're in service of other moral imperatives, ultimately. Uh, And as Rawls puts it, property, capitalism, it's just, as in it is a form of justice, Mm -hmm. only insofar as it helps us to function as a society. And in his specific conception, that means only insofar as it's to the betterment of the worst off in society. When it stops helping us function, it stops making sense to enshrine these property rights. Mm. In a world which will become increasingly digital and the apparent lack of scarcity will start to rub up more and more and make us question our fundamental perspective on the nature of property, it's enshrined and enshrined value in any case, right? So, sorry, what I'm saying there is like, we have these strong ideas of property, but increasingly like we're in the metaverse and property is like, well, I can just make more property, Mm. right? Are we going to start to have a different perspective on what property even is? Mm-hmm, right, mm-hmm, properties start to be like I don't know ideas and things like that, rather than because you can always make more pixels and make more fake land or whatever. Like it's it's completely artificial scarcity. So what's it worth to you? Eh? <laughs> <laughs> um, Were you waiting to do that? I was all along. And on that note, it's time for a quick ad break. Forgive our capitalist sins. This is how we pay for providing. These episodes. <laughs> hey, this this podcast is my property. So <laughs> <laughs> Okay, welcome back. So to recap, taxes serve three functions. The first was the provision of public goods, and we just had a long discussion of what that means and why we believe it's justified. That was, that was to clarify, the next two aren't going to be as long. That is the main function of government, right? That is, is, and it's also the main argument for why we generate or how we can generate political obligations to one another. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's that public good argument. But those aren't the only kinds of taxes, we think. Yeah. So there's two other functions we mentioned. Up next, another function of taxes is in order to influence behavior or specifically to internalize market external. Well, you say specifically, or sometimes. Sometimes, yeah. They're not not mutually exclusive. So so what does that mean? What does that mean? Influencing behavior, it can be a deliberate thing, or it can be kind of incidental and unintended Mm -hmm. effect. So what does this mean? Influencing behavior can be a deliberate thing as a result of uh, tax policies. Sometimes it's an unintended consequence of other sorts of taxes. But in this case, we're talking about the ones where people are trying to do that. That's that's why they're generating this tax. It could also be that it's, you know, the change in behavior is a knock-on effect of internalizing externalities, which we'll, we'll explain. Firstly, you know, if I'm going to say internalizing externalities, and like we said, not everyone studied economics, <laughs> uh, it's useful to say what an externality is. An externality is an effect on a third party of a transaction. So Jake and I are doing something, but it has some impact on someone else. Externalities can be positive. This is <laughs> quite a fun, trivial example. For example, if I walk past a bakery and I enjoy the smell of a freshly baked loaf that I didn't pay for, but I benefit from. That is That's a positive externality. Econ 101. Yeah. <laughs> Love it. Exactly. In general, when we're applying taxes, we're mostly concerned 
concerned with addressing negative externalities, which is when instead of a positive, there's a negative. So maybe instead of instead of walking past a bakery, I'm walking past a sewage plant <laughs> or you're driving past a farm and it stinks. It's addressing a, a negative externality, a harm on a third party. Really classic examples, really obvious examples. The impact of secondhand smoking. If your friend buys a cigarette and smokes it near you and you breathe in the exhalation from them, it can ultimately negatively impact your health. You are more likely to get lung cancer and you can die escalated quickly. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. That's an externality. And it's part of the reason that, for example, cigarettes are taxed. So taxes to influence behavior can range from adding extra taxes on products that pollute, such as gas guzzling vehicles, to giving tax breaks to alternative products, for example, tax credits for buying electric cars, or even yes. tax credits for investing in small businesses, things that the government want to promote. Ideally, goods and services that have a negative social impact, for example, cigarettes, alcohol, gambling, junk food, etc., they'll be more heavily taxed, and their positive counterparts will be promoted through financial incentives, for example, promoting exercise, creativity, healthy foods, medical research, etc. And as many companies and people make decisions based on the expected costs and benefits, this can be an effective way to encourage the behaviours which the government deems will have an optimal social benefit. This leads to some of the problem in how we justify this, mm. because there's a few points we said there about optimal social benefit, and we said a lot of things, we went for things that were uncontentious, but sometimes people disagree on what is a positive or negative thing and what we should value at all, you know. There's a lot of debate around whether it's right for the government to do this at all, and part of it comes down to intention, right? Mm. It can be hard to ascribe a specific intentionality to the biggest institution probably in your country. Is there a country where the government is not the largest institution? Maybe Walmart in America? America? No, no, it can't be. That, 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 no, no, no. It must be the largest in the land. You always see stuff like Amazon is bigger than the GDP of all these different nations. But, you know, despite having a leader, there are literally thousands of decision makers within government with competing ideas and incentives. So to say they have one idea, like the government has an idea, is a bit, uh, yeah, not really clear. But. Yeah, gotcha. If the intention is to alter behavior on the basis of some subjective interpretation of what is right, then these actions can be seen as paternalistic. And that's, that's the point you're driving at. Mm. So an example of this in laws, instead of specifically taxes, could be abortion laws. Ultimately, whether you think it's the government's place to make such assessments depends kind of on where you sit on this authoritarian to libertarian spectrum. So, I mean, this is subjective. Again, it's down to what you believe. Strict libertarians believe governments have no place to determine these things, whereas obviously authoritarians think it's a critical function of government to force people to do what is right. So talking about the strict libertarians, you know, some people would think that sin taxes on sugar or tax on, you know, smoking, drinking, that's just interfering with people's freedom to enjoy themselves. The government shouldn't be taking a stance on that at all. Passing judgment. Yeah, effectively passing judgment or having some sort of subjective perception of what's right or wrong. A similar, I mean, obviously this is a big part of the whole abortion laws thing, right? And it's really ironic that the same spectrum of the political parties in the US who are like pro-controlling abortion happen to also be the ones who are generally more libertarian, like the right, mm. right, right side. This is where you kind of realize that politics is a, it's on a, it's on a it's two spectrum kind of thing yeah. rather than a, just uh, a line, rather than just one line or one D. Wait, is that one D? Uh, 2D is a line. Uh, so yeah, 3D. no, no, no. No, wait, 2D. You're right. 1D is a line, 2D is a square. Oh, of course. It's dimension, dimension, 2D. Yeah. <laughs> um, wait, how many dimensions? <laughs> however, on the other hand, smoking and drinking put a big strain on our healthcare systems, so they're causing an externality on other people. It's crowding out my access to that healthcare. Mm. So maybe it makes sense to tax them for that reason. You know, say from some libertarian perspective, it's unfair that you guys making some decisions is impacting me negatively. You're actually limiting my freedom indirectly. I get you. Yep. A discredit of this argument is that taxes are not often ring-fenced, so this creates a moral disconnect. For example, you can't say that you're taxing me to counteract the impact of X if you're not ring-fencing the money specifically for X. So, if more people smoke, 
what we don't do, but we could, is proportionally increase the spend on lung cancer care. Mm. In practice, that's probably because the burden of doing so would be administratively really intense. But yeah. it's a way of aligning tax and policies. And, and, and my mm. point here is the government don't do that. And yeah, that, yeah. to some extent, undermines it. Yeah. Basically, the thing would be, take, for example, a carbon tax. The intention of a carbon tax isn't so much like a syntax where it's like, oh, don't do it so much. It would be more like, oh, we're just correctly pricing the cost of this thing. Mm-hmm. You can still, you can now buy as much of it as you want, but it's going to be correctly priced. And, you know, that price may go up if demand remains too high because of the maybe nonlinear the impacts of you know our purchasing and use of goods on carbon intensity. It's almost a way of selling it because if, if they did allocate that money against like climate change policies, mm. then uh, there's something sort of pleasingly circular about that. Yeah, I mean, uh, it, yeah, it's funny how like term syntax kind of says it all, right? Syntax, like if <laughs> sounds like syntax error. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> if you think about smoking, for example, you, know, you could argue that it would be like, well, now that I'm paying the syntax, I feel entirely justified, and actually I can smoke more because I don't feel like I'm having a negative external on other people. Um, nonetheless, so counteracting externality can be a helpful way to sell policies, even if there's not ring-fenced in the way that you know it's actually tying things together. A really interesting one, because I read this um, literally yesterday, was an article in The Economist advocating for the legalization of cocaine. The idea there is if we legalize it, we'll stamp out the illegal drugs trade and all the associated harms. And what's really interesting was they recognize that if we do this, probably it will lead to an uptake in cocaine usage. Cocaine is highly addictive, and that is sort of socially problematic. But they were reasoning that actually the tax receipts alone from the legal sales of cocaine mm-hmm. could more than cover the cost of investment in rehab centres and that would mm. uh, combat the addiction effects and they think this yeah. would be socially net beneficial. Yeah, and it's classic. interesting that it sort of positions those two things together. Yeah, classic. it's classic like better the devil you know. No, no, no. That's more like for staying with the status quo. It's classic kind of like cost-benefit analysis reasoning where like just because there's costs doesn't mean that the benefits wouldn't outweigh them. So thinking about that ring fencing, in practice, money is fungible. Uh, so the whole idea of like, oh, we're taxing this to affect this behavior or ring fencing it to attack X problem. This is more of a PR point than anything else. If governments want to sell taxes on the basis of influence behavior, clearly defining their complement could be a powerful way of selling it. Yeah, totally. So why is internalizing externalities a method of uh, justifying this uh, this policy of influencing behavior? Well, if governments don't do this, the question remains, who would? This is a problem that we see at an international level, since without a super, supra, super, supra. Yeah, it's super governmental or super government. <laughs> <laughs> but without this sort of overarching world governmental body, these issues basically can't get solved, short of charities intervening to solve them. And also given limited resources of time, effort, money, political capital, question of how you identify and prioritize is a challenge and a moral consideration like in itself. Yeah, basically that point that we made about the, the super government organizations is like, hey, when we look internationally, actually, we can see that issues of climate change, for example, it's, you know, the countries who are emitting climate pollution that's causing climate change tend to be the not the countries or have in the past done that a lot, aren't the countries who are being affected by it. It's, you know, more developing region countries, mm. largely agricultural. And say that was, you know, one functioning nation you'd probably want to redistribute some some of the benefits from that and the polluting activities to help the people who are being hurt by it. But that doesn't really happen. It's really hard to coordinate it. It's hard to coordinate, right? Because you're not aligned incentives because you're not one government. And then like you said there, sorry, given limited resources, and you know, there's going to be not an infinite, but a huge list of externalities that you could argue about internalizing. And then suddenly how you order that list is a moral question in itself. It is. It is. Yeah. It's a a question of prioritizing. An example, we don't want empty homes when there's a housing crisis. And we Mm. talked about that in the last episode, the previous episodes in property. And that's exactly the kind of problem that tax policies could be used as a tool to solve. But it comes down to the political will and subjective perspectives on what's worth fixing in order to allocate effort to actually do that 
above other problems. Because also, ultimately, practically, no government can come in and be like, right, here's the list of 700 things we're changing. It's <laughs> all happening now, right? There's only a certain amount of political will mm-hmm. and, and the machinery of, and bureaucracy of, of government that can be done at a certain point in time. Mm-hmm. We're kind of justifying that then by saying, you know, stuff does need to be done. Externalities yeah. need to be corrected. And you do need an organization with yeah. that, like, power to be able to do it. Yeah. And, and I mean, like, just again, sorry, to justify the, those behaviors, should the government be telling you what to do? Or sorry, to, to, to justify, sorry, not those behaviors, these sorts of taxes. Mm-hmm. Should the government be telling you what to do? That's a subjective perspective. I personally am more on the libertarian side. Like, mm-hmm. I took the political quiz and I'm lib left. Yeah. Um, Shockingly, so am I. Shockingly, I know. Who would have guessed? Um, But, you know, there are some people who have strong perspectives, like maybe you're very religious or or traditional values, and you think the government should help actually promote those values. So it's a little bit down to perspective. But then when it comes to internalizing externalities, unavoidably, it's a bit like any sort of writing has some bias, any sort of externalizing externalities has some bias, which ones do and don't, how quickly, etc., how it's done. By and large, I'd say it's a good thing, right? It, it, yeah. it clearly seems just that someone who is negatively impacted by a transaction they weren't involved in should, you know, be compensated if they're being negatively harmed. I totally buy the economic argument for doing that. And much and like moral you, argument. The moral argument. And, and much like you, I think the question of how involved government should be in telling you what to do, uh, I probably sit similarly more on the sort of, you don't want them to be too over-involved in a paternalistic sense. Yeah. I, you know, I recognize there's a place for it. I don't think it's necessarily the government's place to uphold all our societal morals. But yeah. yeah. I, I do also think actually in fairness, this is where tax is very interesting as an alternative to laws because mm. taxes can like, it can make something more expensive but still give you access to it right mm-hmm. uh, and that's why tax is a better example of internalizing externalities rather than enforcing government like moral perspectives yeah like when i put extra tax on smoking i don't say you can't smoke i just say hey like this is negatively affecting other people yeah exactly so we talked about public goods and we just then talked about influencing behavior finally the third point taxes can serve the function of redistributing wealth. Right. So when we think about redistribution, I think one important distinction to think about is that partially this is passive and partially this is active. The passive element is that, and this is a big part of tax policy. I mean, anyone who's in the UK knows that like recently there was a mini budget where there's a lot of discussion around this. Mm-hmm. Um, oh my God. Oh, you see he got sacked literally just like 10 minutes before he came in to record this. Hopefully interest rates fall. <laughs> <laughs> and then I saw a tweet that said Quasi Quarting lasted less time than David Blaine was in that box. <laughs> That's so funny. But sorry, passive redistribution is about how we gather tax, right? Who are we taxing? How much? At what point? You know, why? And what sort of metrics are we basing it on? Generally, lower incomes tend to mean lower tax and Mm -hmm. zero income would mean zero tax, right? Without being barred from public goods. The active element of redistribution is more around where are we supplying money to? So like, what are public services we're providing? What are elements of the social safety net, as we would call it, right? So in the UK, that could mean benefits. In the US, that could mean stuff like food stamps. In both cases, it could mean stuff like tax credits to people who are in circumstances like you know, having a family, etc., where like that's starting to incur more cost. Well, these are all examples of redistribution of wealth. Yep. Now, uh, some uh, people... Redistribution in general by tax. Some people would say that any redistribution is unjust. And we've talked about the philosopher Robert Nozick before, and that's like we were mentioning earlier about just sort of fundamental property rights. This is a strictly libertarian view that says, you know, you've yeah. earned your money, it's hard and it's yours. Yeah, There's no is, obligation to sort of contribute that back to anyone and, yeah. and 
tax is a kind of a form of theft. Nozick would say that as long as people are transacting freely, there's nothing wrong going on and, and you can't be forced to, yeah. to give up your wealth. The obvious contradiction to that is two things. One, the origination of ownership is a huge problem. And he's like, oh, you mix your labor with stuff and it becomes yours. It's like, well, if I cut a branch off a tree in a public park, is it now my, like, <laughs> you know, can the park ranger come over and be like, why did you just cut that branch? <laughs> what are the limits to that? And the other thing is like, how free are transactions, right? Like if I'm choosing to work a minimum mm. wage job, do many people choose to do that or do people have to do that? Yeah, it's right? a question of bargaining power, right? Yep, exactly. But, you know, all of that, that's one perspective, a moral perspective. Let's put morals aside for one second, right? And we will come back. Obviously, this is a podcast about philosophy and morals. <laughs> There's actually a really strong economic argument for redistribution, which will make even a libertarian ultimately better off if there is some redistribution. Redistributing wealth via progressive taxes and welfare payments and, you know, funneling into public services that particularly help the worst off is the most direct way of combating inequality. This reduces poverty and should lead to increased economic and political stability, right? And political stability is important, right? Because we've had a lot of political stability for a long time, but, you know, the rich should be mindful that ultimately revolutions aren't good for for the rich, right? (laughs) Famously. Yeah. And also, you know, there's a lot of uh, knock-on benefits where like, is it more important for a very wealthy person to have slightly more money each year? Or would they prefer to be less afraid of crime because they're... Let's take an example of somewhere like South Africa, right? Mm -hmm. You can be very wealthy somewhere like South Africa, but you also, you know, are scared of being carjacked, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. which is less of an issue somewhere in more stable, equal societies. It's a a really good way of driving home the point. I think it's hard to imagine people would be like, I don't care about inequality, but it's certainly something that affects you more if you're on the lower end of the equality spectrum than than if you're someone who's very well off. This is an important case as to why you should care about inequality, even if you're very wealthy. Yeah, even the, like this is, I mean, I'm biased by the, the sort of media that I inevitably am pushed. Even with the recent proposed tax cuts that they eventually you turned on, Mm -hmm. you know, there were vocal proponents saying like, I care more about being in a functioning society than saving 5% marginal tax, right? I do not care about, if I'm very wealthy, I presumably don't care about a few extra thousand. And actually, you know, say, okay, you save a little bit on tax payments. Like if we have a more functioning wider society, I'm going to save money anyway, because inflation won't be crazy and interest rates won't be high. Like a more stable, wider economy is actually more beneficial than slightly less tax. 100%. 100%. We have in the notes here, think of the French Revolution. <laughs> just, to, just to take an extreme yeah. example. If you're, if you're wealthy and you're, you're anti-redistributive like, tax, think of the re- French Revolution. The next time that you tell someone, let them eat cake. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, we have a fun thought experiment now to bring it back on a sort of moral track and question how things should be. Right, because we were just talking about like, oh, you know, maybe it's a implication of what we're saying above was like, okay, so one of the aims of government should be driving overall economic growth and stability and political stability, right? Yeah, it's, it's an economic justification for why redistribution is important. But now to tie this to morals. Exactly. To bring it back to morals, we can construct a hypothetical situation which would simultaneously satisfy economic outputs improving on average, but have a sort of moral complication. So let's imagine, for example, we have a situation where we can almost guarantee growth 20% every year, GDP. So Liz Truss is very, very happy because yeah. that's all she seems to care about. <laughs> but to do that, we have a small class of slaves. Yeah. And, and we're talking literal we, slaves here. Literal not, slaves. Not yeah. the economic slaves that do exist. <laughs> yeah. Literal slaves who exist in abhorrent conditions. I'm not sure what they're, what's being done to them that we're growing 20% each year, but you know. We're slaving away. Don't ask questions. The question is, how do you feel about this? Are we morally comfortable with suppressing the small class of slaves in order to achieve economic growth yep like and sorry part of this assumption is like let's assume it's very well managed and it's a small class of slaves mm-hmm. such that 
it doesn't disproportionately increase the risk of political instability. It's a little bit like that utilitarian thought experiment of like, would you have one person suffer horribly yeah. in order yeah, yeah. to have a happy society? It's, it's pretty much that at a political level, right? Mm -hmm. If you're listening to this, I hope that your immediate reaction was that's not acceptable. Mm -hmm. If not, go take a look in the mirror, have a cold shower, <laughs> have a serious think uh, about the person that you want to be. <laughs> but it helps inform the argument that the purpose of redistribution is not just in service of economic growth. Although that is a great argument to put forward for practical reasons and even to someone like a libertarian where it's like, hey, ultimately this is even to your benefit. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. The point is that there's also some moral imperative that most of us can think and feel about in the perspective of redistribution. And it's that this economic growth is actually really in service of something else. And that's probably welfare. Yeah, I think that's such a classic point that people, it's the problem of optimizing to metrics and you have GDP as one single metric and people obsess over like, what's GDP done this quarter? Has it gone yeah. up? Has it gone down? But we forget that that's really just a proxy for, as you say, social welfare, social betterment. And that's what governments should be yeah. aiming to optimize. Exactly. To. So, so you know, if you have a society that's GDP is growing quickly, but everyone's working 100 hours a week and, you know, is reporting unhappiness and mm. fertility rates are falling. Suicide rates are rising. Suicide rates are rising. I am roughly describing developed countries at the moment. Mm -hmm. This is a, a thing that people have been saying for a while, where it's like, maybe we're optimizing to the wrong stuff. Maybe everyone working 80 to 100 hour weeks at law firms that pay well, law firms, banks, etc. Like, Maybe that's good for GDP, but not good for the human experience. <laughs> uh, it's about welfare. And one of the really important things, and this is why redistribution is so important, is that welfare follows a diminishing return. What does that mean? That means that the curve, it follows a, a line that instead of being straight or curving upwards like exponential, it's actually the reflection of curving upwards exponential, curving downwards. So you'll have heard that stat where it's like, oh, I guess the number nowadays would be something like 100,000. Mm -hmm. uh, oh, you know, every incremental thing that you earn over... 100k doesn't really make you happier. Like mm -hmm. once you hit a point where you have enough and then warm money doesn't really affect your happiness, right? Sure. On the flip side, when you are extremely poor, every incremental pound makes you really happier. <laughs> like it, so, and that's kind of the point that you're doing there. You're taking from people who are not being made that much more well off by their money and giving to people who will be made much more well off. It's a much more efficient way to optimize welfare in society. It's those reasons that led rules. We've talked about John Rules before, famous philosopher who talks about social justice and stuff. And these are the kind of things that led him to his specific articulation that inequality is only justified insofar as it benefits the worst off. And you can tolerate inequality in a society as long as it makes the worst off like, better. relatively better off. So practically though, we can take Rawls's point, but Rawls doesn't prescribe or sort of off the top of my head, maybe he does. As far as I'm aware, he doesn't prescribe a specific route mm -hmm. or, or a method of taxation in order to do that. So it's impossible to actually avoid the question of how much and how should people pay? What makes a tax amount fair? Like we can agree, okay, it should be redistributive, maybe it should be progressive, mm -hmm. but how do we decide how to actually set that? Yeah. So there are two ways to think about this. Academics call them horizontal equity and vertical equity, which sound a bit technical, but in layman's terms, all that means, so horizontal equity is people with the same financial situation, it's horizontal, but you're equal, they should pay the same amount of tax. And that seems straightforward and hard to argue with. Vertical equity means that people who are better off than you should pay at least the same amount of tax as you, if not more. Yeah, I guess it's just like having a sort of less than or equal to sign yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and, a, and a chain of those. It's the concept of vertical equity that matters when we think about whether a tax system should be progressive or linear right. or, or even regressive. Yeah, so I, I would say vertical equity is both true and actually should be quite strongly like you should pay more. <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, those seem like reasonable ways to think about it. It's hard to argue that the better off people should pay less, right? Mm -hmm. So when we look at the options of regressive, linear, and progressive, we can discuss whether these meet these criteria. And basically from what we're saying before, it's probably going to be progressive that makes sense, right? Mm -hmm. So in theory, 
a regressive tax system could mean everyone pays the same amount. It would just be complex to set it that way. Yeah, because basically what you're saying, if, if like someone earns 100K and someone earns 50K, but they were both taxed at 10 and 5% respectively, got you, got you'd you, get got the you. same. You're saying if everyone had to pay £100 tax, mm-hmm. that £100 would be more to someone who only earns 20K versus someone who earns 100K. Yeah, so it it's a regressive system, but in practice it meets the sort of vertical equity point because you're all actually paying the same amount. Yes. Uh, and that's what makes it regressive. Got you. Okay. It would be a tough PR sell to argue yeah. that they should pay a lower. <laughs> so this is one of the things that people talk about a lot. Like it's not just the amount of tax, it's the proportion of tax. That's mm. Particularly because as you get richer, like you start to just zoom away from like your base level need costs and, and incremental pounds just become disposable income. Yeah. A linear system would be, it would have somewhat fair appearance. Some places have this. And actually a huge benefit of a linear system is simplicity. Yes. Right? Yeah. Say for example, 10% of everyone's wealth will go further in the case of someone rich, but would appease critics of progressive systems, right? So the rich are definitely paying more because Mm -hmm. 10% of 100K is is more than 10% of 10K. Mm -hmm. But it also avoids weird incentives around progressive tax bans, i.e., when your income jumps you into the next brand, your, your pay rise becomes proportionally less valuable. Yeah, stuff that employers have to take into account, I guess. It's like, oh, we're yeah. promoting someone. Yeah, they're, they're, getting, they're going over the 45K threshold. Yeah. That means they're actually going to net less. So Yeah, know. and there are some things where it's like, oh, if you're a high-rate taxpayer, it affects certain decisions in your life and, mm-hmm. and, and things. It's basically like, oh, it's suddenly like a 10K pay rise to someone who is not a high-rate taxpayer is much more useful and motivating than someone who is a, t- a higher-rate taxpayer. Both because they're already at the point where incremental money doesn't ma- matter that much mm-hmm. and they're getting less of it anyway. Obviously, the tax only applies to the wealth above uh, a certain threshold, generally, but still it can have an influence. So a linear system meets both senses of equity that's horizontal. People on the same band are paying the same and equi- and hor- and vertical. People who are earning more pay more. But that would be like the linear system. Yep. And a progressive tax system obviously meets both types of equity. The only people who can really complain about a progressive tax system are the very wealthy because they pay, quote, disproportionately more, unquote. Although the band should be calculated at a level that means there's still like very reasonable amount of take-home pay. And that's the point you're making is like you're taxing at a heavier amount when you hit the sort of purely marginal disposable levels. Yeah, of like yeah you don't need on this extra money. It's just money that you can choose to spend. And so to clarify, when you're saying regressive, linear and progressive, it's basically like is the percentage that people it's pay. It's percentages. So regressive would be like, oh, poor people pay 20%, rich people pay 10%. But it could be that the 10% of a bigger number is still a bigger amount. Totally. Um, yeah, which, so which is what makes it more complicated. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Cool. So um, students of economics will be familiar with something called the tax optimization curve. And it's shaped like another, it's another problem of tax. Yeah, it's shaped like a lowercase n. And uh, this describes the theoretical optimum of what number to set taxes at to raise the most money. Along the x axis, you have the rate of tax and the y axis is how much money you raise in tax receipts. So obviously, if you set taxes at zero, you'd make no money. Yeah, because no one uh, like you you make no money. (laughs) You're not taxing. If you set taxes at 100 percent, in theory, nobody would work. So you'd also make no money. Maybe not exactly, but, you know, that's why you've got a sort of downward yeah. effect at the end. Is this, is this not the Laffer curve? It is. Thank you. you I said, I called it the tax optimization curve because I just couldn't remember. I should have just Googled that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's the Laffer curve. Um, is it like an N or is it just like a... Parabola. A parabola, yeah. Just yeah. A, Lowercase N. Not like a... It's actually a more like... It's more like a, a an upside down U and sl- slanted to the left. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, the, the point is because you're mixing the amount that you take with the incentive effects of tax, there mm-hmm. is an optimal point... Where like if you tax more, you're just disincentivizing doing stuff. Exactly. That's it. And you want to find that point in the middle 
which recently the Tory party estimated to be 40% before they backtracked. Yeah, they were like, what's the point in charging more than that? But yeah, there's an optimum that exists. That's, that's literally one of the famous challenges of economics, uh, central sort of government economics is how, how maximizing, to identify that. Maximizing, yeah, maximizing that. Because it could be, you know, reducing taxes could encourage people to do more stuff. That actually means, it's okay, Walmart charges less for certain items than other shops, right? That doesn't mm-hmm. mean they don't make more money. It means that they're making up the difference by selling more. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. What's the analogy so, to government? That reducing taxes could increase your tax intake if it leads to growth. Yeah, because people work yeah. more, and, okay. or it, or yeah. induces people to bother working. Mm-hmm. Bother. Sorry, that sounds like a very like <laughs> bother wasn't the word I meant there, but you know what I mean. Another perspective on this, uh, very famous, and I'd mentioned we come to Marx. You know, he has the famous aphorism: "From each according to their abilities, to each according to their needs." Right. Uh, which you know, morally and intuitively, is very. Nice. Sounds, sounds nice. Uh, and in some sense, progressive tax kind of captures an element of this idea because those who are earning a lot don't need their incremental money as much as those who are not earning very much. Progressive tax systems manage to capture that sense of it whilst not encompassing like the kind of planned economy elements of a really communist government. And this may be why ultimately socially redistributive forms of capitalism with progressive tax bans seem to have outperformed communist societies. And then, you know, we were talking about roles and his like to the betterment of the worst off using roles as rule, inequalities, you know, where inequalities really exist insofar as they're better for them. This could explain why capitalist societies are actually, you know, capitalist societies that are redistributive with progressive tax systems actually could be arguably more just than, you know, a seemingly more equal communist society in practice, right? You have that kind of moral ideal of like, well, if, if everyone's equal and it's all everyone's stuff, then like, surely that's like morally optimum. But like the practical outcome of like, well, no, like the inequality in capitalist societies helps the society actually do better mm. or grow is kind of what justifies it there. Yeah, nice. Okay, so we've reached the end of the episode. And what we've done here is run through the three functions of taxes. Those are funding public goods, influencing behavior with like nudges and externalities, well, sorry, addressing externalities. And the third one we just discussed was redistributing wealth. But one final practical consideration. We kind of touched on this, but... Yeah, we mentioned it briefly. What makes a tax system effective? If we get a morally perfect system that's impossible to administer, it's obviously, it's a useless system. Yeah, so this is, we mentioned like a linear tax system, uh, and we also mentioned the Laffer curve, the tax optimization curve. Those are are ways of thinking about like practically effective tax systems. So Mm -hmm. like a linear tax system is very clearly understandable. The Laffer curve discusses like it's about optimizing tax receipts so not moral yeah Yeah. so like there could be a moral argument for why someone who makes 100 million should pay an 80 percent marginal tax rate but there's a practical laffer curve argument and particularly in the context of like offshoring wealth and things like that Mm -hmm. where like actually not taxing too highly could generate more actual tax revenue yeah to answer that final question about what makes a tax system effective we looked at reports from a number of think tanks that's a bit generous we looked at two (laughs) (laughs) we synthesized them for you guys here an effective tax system should have the following characteristics so aside from being fair and justified, as per the discussion we just had this whole episode. The previous hour you just listened to. Yeah. It should be, one, simple to understand and find information about. Two, it should be easy to administrate. Three, it should raise enough money to cover what it needs to pay for. And we already said this, but yeah, it should be, be fair. fair to its citizens. So all of those feel pretty common sense. Rather than interrogating it too aggressively, I think we'll take those as reasonable practical standards, right? You're basically trying to balance like all of the justifications and moral reasons for how and why you tax with the fact that at the same time... It, it needs should, to work. <laughs> yeah, it needs it needs to be easy to administer. And that's actually one of the things I find that's so interesting with, uh, you see all these tax systems where people like have these great ideas and it's like, well, it reaches this and then there's a marginal blah and there's a marginal blah and then we're going to, and it's like anyone who's actually had to like do their self-assessment or oh, business God. taxes, <laughs> actually it becomes really, like VAT is a nightmare, man. It's so yeah. hard to work out. Anyway, sorry, that was a, a very long
long episode to intro talking about taxes, how and why people pay them. Jake, any perspectives? I think the one that I find really interesting and the point that we were making earlier is that point about existing in a society and benefiting from it indirectly, even if you don't see direct benefits. I've met so many people who, who sort of make the points that we discussed. My family paid for private education. I never go to the NHS when yeah. I have private healthcare. Like you're fundamentally misunderstanding the benefit of being part of a functioning society with a base layer of trust and the fact that maybe you don't use those things, but you know you can use them. The legal system is such a good example, right? Mm. So few people use it. Everyone benefits from the fact that it does exist and it's like a credible Yeah, it's like a anyone. deterrent, really, yeah, in some deterrent, respects, right? isn't it? It's the same with police, right? It's like, oh, well, I never get robbed. And it's like, well, that doesn't mean the police aren't doing anything for me. <laughs> yeah, um, just because you've never had to interact with them directly doesn't mean you don't indirectly yeah, benefit from yeah, yeah. them. And anyone who's like, oh, well, you know, I'm, I'm building this big company or whatever and blah, 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 blah. It's like, well, could you have built that great company in a war-torn developing country? Mm-hmm. You, you might not have even had reliable access to an office space with internet, mm. let alone hiring talent. You know, the mm-hmm. fact that those people who can facilitate doing the things exist, let alone that you can reasonably find third party services. I deeply agree. Like, I think a lot of people really fundamentally don't understand that, like, the point of the public wealth that we've managed to build as societies and the very public nature of it. Yeah. So now, armed with that framework, this actually provides, like you said, it's a great foundation for all future episodes we'll do on tax. Directly, we're linking this to the next question, which will be, should we have a death tax? Should we tax the dead? Yeah. Looking at inheritance tax next. But yeah, we'll probably reference this in future, guys. Yeah. As always. Let us know your thoughts. Feel free to reach out to us. Yeah, you can email us, anthony at stasher, jacob at stasher.com. Of course, please do. If you've enjoyed this, leave a review. If you have any disagreements or thoughts or questions, feel free to contact us on our Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, and feel free to support the show through Acast or Patreon. Nice. Thank you, guys. See you next time.